So last week we did Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. And in that part of the chapter, we looked at the marathon of faith. We looked at all that God has supplied with us so we can run the marathon of faith. But as we go to chapter 12, verses 14 through the end, we are going to look at the reason why we run. Now, we run by faith, we run for faith, but we run because we have a covenant of grace. Our old covenant was a covenant of the law, rules, and rituals, and it was conditioned on perfect behavior. But the new covenant, the covenant of grace that we've received through Jesus Christ is established on what Jesus has done for us. Now, years ago, after a particular retreat, I had a woman who invited me to coffee, and she was so sweet and so kind. I was really excited about this coffee. But when we got to coffee and we sat down, she began with a very sweet voice to rebuke me. Um, It was a very sweet voice, but not so sweet words, and the condemnation was pretty strong. And what she referred back to was during that retreat, I had led the communion service. And I had said something that made the women laugh. You know, I was talking about the Last Supper, about Jesus established the covenant. And I don't know what I said, but whatever I said, some of the women laughed. And she was really, really upset by this. And as we were sitting there, she said, you have no fear of God. And you weren't reverent, you know, and you you brought irreverence to communion. And I looked at her and I I was praying and I said, no, no, I didn't. I said, I brought the new covenant, which Jesus established that night. That's what he did by his life, by the bread and by the wine. He established the new covenant of grace. And grace is all about Jesus got it right, but we get it wrong. And what I did is I poked fun at myself, and I can laugh at me, and I can laugh at my imperfections, because Jesus is absolutely perfect. And I told her, I don't lack a fear of the Lord. I absolutely reverence God. I know he's big. I know he's great. I know he's strong. I know he's a consuming fire. But I also know that I am safe with God and in God through Jesus Christ. And as she was walking away, I said to her, the first covenant was a covenant of fear and based on fear, do this or else. But this covenant that we have through Jesus Christ is a covenant based on love. It is the covenant for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that makes it a covenant of grace. This new covenant that we have is characterized by God's grace and love for us. And it has nothing to do with our imperfections. It is impossible by the law or even without the law to ever be perfect. God knowing this established a new covenant that has everything to do with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So the new covenant is based on, empowered by, and operated by grace. It is by God's grace that we are saved through faith, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, 
we can't add to grace. All we can do with grace is believe it, receive it, and confess it by faith. In John 1, verse 17, John says, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The first covenant based on the law, based on fear, came through Moses. But the greater covenant that was brought to us by Jesus Christ is a covenant of grace, grace even before truth. Yes, it's truth. But truth is too harsh, too dangerous without grace. So we're enveloped in grace that we might know the truth. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Titus 3 Verses five through seven says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are not only saved by grace, we are empowered by God's grace. God's grace is working in us to will, to do the will of God, to perform and to obey his word. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Did you hear all those A's? There's seven A's that I want to draw your attention to. Able all grace, abound, always, all sufficiency, all things, abundance for every good work. This is what the graced life gets us. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodly and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age. It is God's grace that works in us to do the will of God. Furthermore, we are enriched by God's grace. It is God's grace that gives us all the blessings that Jesus alone merited. Now, as we come to Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 29, the author gives us a series of contrasts to show the superiority of life under the covenant of grace. In verses 14 through 17, he shows us that grace gives us a better relationship or better relationships. Verses 18 through 23 shows us that grace brings to us better destination. Verses 24 and 25, that grace has a better message. Verse 26 and 28, grace provides us with a better future. And finally, verse 28, B through 29, that we can give God better service by grace. So we begin with the better relationships under the covenant of grace. Our pursuit under the covenant of grace, our goal, our objective with others is peace. Peace with all men. As he says in verse 14, pursue, go after peace with all men. Now, You and I probably both know 
that there are some people who are always at war. Do you know those people? Somebody, they've always got a cause against somebody. They're always upset at someone. There's always someone on their anger radar, like, ah, this person. And, and they're always on the outs with someone or maybe some movement, like, did you hear about this fellowship or did you hear about that fellowship? They're doing this. And, and they're always critical, always angry. They're not pursuing peace. They always have an issue against someone, and every conversation will veer to that issue. I think John and James, the disciples of Jesus, might have had an issue with this. In Mark 9, verses 39 through 41, James and uh, John, excuse me, it was John, comes to Jesus, and he says, Lord, we heard someone casting out demons in your name, and we rebuked them. And Jesus said, don't do that. Because he who is not against us is with us. And no one can say something in my name without believing. In other words, as these people were casting out demons in Jesus' name, realizing the power of Jesus' name, they would come to salvation. Another time, James and John, who were also known as the sons of thunder, when Jesus was going through Samaria, there was one village that said that Jesus couldn't go in because they saw that he was on his way to Jerusalem. And James and John came to Jesus and were told this in Luke. And they said to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just to consume this village? And Luke 9.55, Jesus said, no, you don't know what spirit you are of. For the son of man did not, come to destroy, but to save. You see, Jesus pursued peace. He was always pursuing peace. Someone once said that if Jesus had come down in righteousness alone, we'd all be dead. But he came in grace that we might all live. We are to seek peace, not just with some men, but with all men. Not just those who hold our same opinion like we can have peace. Not just with those who are Christians or of the household of faith, but with all men. Why? Because we serve the Prince of Peace and the God of all peace. So peace becomes a hallmark or a sign or an indication that we know the God of all peace. Paul began every epistle with these words, grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace sets us apart, grace and peace. Our pursuit is also holiness, to be set apart for the Lord, to be used for God's glory. And then the author of Hebrews says, without holiness, we will never see God without holiness, unless we're set apart. And, and that's what the first part of the chapter talked about, being set apart, unless we're in this race, unless we're under coach Jesus and, and looking to the witnesses that he surrounded us by, unless we're listening to his directives, receiving, receiving the chastening, unless we are disciplined by the Lord, set apart, set apart. We will never see God at work 
We will never see God at work in our lives. There are some, because they lack that holiness, being set apart by God, letting God work in them, they never see God at work in their lives. I've talked to people that are like, I don't see what God's doing. I don't see God. I, my life is just doing the same. Well, you know what? Pursue peace with all men and holiness. I, I've talked to other people and they say, I don't see God in my life. Well, pursue peace and holiness. And I don't see God in the life of others. Well, pursue peace and holiness in your relationship. And you'll begin to see God working here on earth. But also, it's a future promise that we will see God. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will see God. The peacemakers. We need holiness imparted to us through Jesus by grace. Now, what's the contrast? The contrast is falling short of grace in our relationships because of bitterness. We either pursue peace and holiness or we fall short of God's grace through bitterness. Now, bitterness enters our heart like a seed. And it begins with just a little bit of resentment, unforgiveness, anger, hurt, disagreement. And if we don't get rid of that seed and we let that seed go into the ground it implants itself in the soil of our heart. It takes root. It goes deep into the soil. And from there, it begins to grow. It takes root and it begins to spring up and it becomes substantial. And then it begins to defile others. It, go, it defiles others because it goes to seed and those seeds are carried by the wind, foot traffic, and birds into other gardens where again, the whole process starts. It takes root. It begins to spring up. Many people don't like someone because of a seed that came into their garden. It's something that they heard about them. It's perhaps a bit of gossip or something they read on Facebook and they don't like them. And that seed begins to take root. But it springs up. Have you ever noticed how an unweeded garden becomes a weed garden. You might have vegetables, you might have productive plants, but if you allow weeds in your garden, they will take over the whole garden and it will spoil the productivity of the other plants and choke out everything that's healthy. And all you see when you look at that garden are weeds. These are bitter seeds, and they will eventually spread to other gardens, take root, and take over. So we need to constantly weed the garden of our heart. And then it mentions, lest we become a fornicator or profane person, like Esau, verse 16, who for a morsel of food sold his birthright. What the author is saying is bitterness or whatever your cause is against someone is not worth giving up your spiritual heritage, your spiritual birthright of grace for that bit of bitterness. Bitterness is a type of fornication or profanity. How, you might say, how is bitterness fornication? Well, fornication is used in the Bible not only of sexual sin, but also of spiritual sin, 
It's when you allow something to be above God in your heart or your life. It's exalting anything or letting anything get between you and the Lord. And that's what happens with bitterness, doesn't it? It gets between you and the Lord. Again, it's choking out the productivity. But we exalt unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, resentment above God's grace. That's what happens when we hold on to bitterness. We say, God, this is too big for you to handle. I'm going to keep this. I have a right to this. I'm not going to give you this. And that's where it becomes profanity. It's something that we're keeping away from God and we're not giving to God. We're not giving it over. We're not releasing it. We feel we have the right to it. And we are exalting that thing and the power of that thing over the power of God to work in our life. Paul says that unforgiveness gives a foothold to Satan and his devices in our heart. No wonder it's profanity. It's a satanic element that's allowed to be planted in our heart and take over and and have growth. We don't want this. What's the alternative? Grace. Grace. What does grace do? Grace pursues peace and purity, holiness in every relationship. When I allow Satan, who is a liar and murderer from the beginning, to get a placehold in my heart, I am no longer representing the God of all peace. But I become more like Satan than I do Christ. Esau could never truly repent. It it got such a, a foothold, and bitterness can get such a placehold in our heart. That some people are too hardened to repent. They refuse to repent. Uh, They see it as something that's a gain instead of such a loss. Esau could never truly repent. He couldn't change. He wanted God's blessing. And we're told he even sought it with tears. But he couldn't and he wouldn't change, weed out, confess his sin, or get to the root. He could not renounce his resentment. The covenant of grace allows us room to repent. We can, by God's grace, renounce bitterness and pursue peace and holiness by God's grace. Next, the covenant of grace has a better destination. Verses 18 through 23. Back in Hebrews 4.16, you perhaps remember this. It's such a great scripture. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The throne of grace is our destination. There we are wanted and met with mercy, forgiveness, welcome. There we receive the ample supply of all we need to live for the glory of God. Remember the A's of always and abundance and able. Without grace, the only destination is Mount Sinai, the law. The law. And Mount Sinai, remember, he says it couldn't be touched. In other words, no one was worthy of it because no one could keep the law. So if anyone with any sin touched Mount Sinai, they would die. The righteous presence of God on Mount Sinai slayed people. That's 
why we need grace. Only grace makes God approachable. We're told that Mount Sinai burned with fire. It was too hot to even get close to. And there was blackness and darkness and tempest. It couldn't be understood. It was not welcoming. It was not safe. The sound was too convicting and condemning. It sounded like a trumpet and those who heard it begged not to hear it. It was too harsh. It was too loud. This is the law. You can't touch it. You can't bear to hear what it says and you can't even approach it. That's the old covenant of fear. But that is not the covenant that we are under. In fact, he says, if a beast even touched the mountain, it would be stoned or shot through with an arrow. And Moses himself was terrified and trembled. Even Moses, through whom the law came, could not approach the mountain without a divine covering or an invitation of God. But by grace, we have come to Mount Zion. And Zion is a biblical euphemism for heaven. By grace, we right now have the kingdom of God set up in our heart. We get to go also to the real place, the very city, the true city of the living God. And what is there? The great assembly. Remember, nobody could touch. The mountain was isolated. Only God was on the mountain. But with us, we have a great assembly. And we're told there's innumerable angels and the assembly of the church. In Revelation 5, 9 through 10, we get um, a bit of an insight to what that general assembly consists of. And it says, and have As the assembly sings, they sing this song and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue, people and nation, made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So the assembly that we've come to is out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is the general assembly we've come to. Remember, Mount Sinai was in the midst of Jews that called out. It was so restricted. And then even Moses couldn't go up there. So restricted. But what? We're allowed to go into Mount Zion. Anyone who believes of all nations and tribes and kindred and tongues. Then we're told that the Mount Zion with the General Assembly is the church of the firstborn. Firstborn here being the term for inheritors of grace. We are those who receive all the blessings of Christ Jesus. That's what it is to be the firstborn. The firstborn in those days, that was the one who inherited everything. If you were the second child, you got nothing. Third child, sorry, hit the streets. But the firstborn, the eldest, they got everything. So firstborn in the Bible, does not mean the eldest of the family, but it means the one who gets the inheritance. And so what he's saying is in Mount Zion, in this heavenly assembly, the general assembly, everybody gets the inheritance. Isn't that great? It's like going to a birthday party where everybody gets presents. I always wanted to go to a birthday party like that. And then he says, the registered in heaven Isn't that great? Registered in heaven. Your name is there. You're expected. You've got reservations. I love that. Placement, belonging. You're expected there. What a welcome. 
And then he says, to the spirits of just men made perfect. And how are we made perfect? Well, we're told that in Hebrews 10, 38, the just are made perfect by faith. The just shall live by faith. Won't heaven be wonderful? No more mistakes or sin. None of those words that you have to explain or like, I'm sorry, I said that. Are you okay with me? I'm okay with you. That will all be made perfect. I had this woman in my life one time. She was a terrible gossip and she was always saying mean things. You would bring her to a party. You tried to invite her in. And all she'd do was like put down the house she was invited to, uh, put down the food she ate. She always had this, just this criticism. And interestingly enough, I was teaching on making our heart the garden of God. And I had gone to this passage and talked about weeds in our garden, how we need to weed out the bitterness and those things. And at this point, I was really, really upset with her. I mean, and she and her husband had left our church, come back, left our church, come back, left our church, and then come back. And I told Brian, don't let him back in. Don't let him back in. I mean, once was bad enough, twice really bad, but not again. Do not let them back. And Brian said to me, I have to. I said, why? He said, grace. And they're really repentant. Shall we have to let them back in? So I'm doing a study and there she is sitting right there and I could see her and she's just smiling at me and she's looking so sincere and beatific. And I'm like, darn, don't want to love her. Don't want to like her. Don't want her here. But she looking so sweet. And she really was, had a great personality when she wasn't being critical and mean. Really great personality. And I remember afterwards, she was waiting for me and I stepped down and she said, Cheryl, will you lay hands on me and pray for me? I've got so many weeds in my garden. And I looked at her and I said, you know what? Darn it. I don't want to love you, but I can't resist you. I can't resist you. And she said, Cheryl, Someday I'm going to be perfect, but I think that might be heaven. And I thought about that, but I thought, oh my goodness, she wanted to be so much better than she was. She didn't want that part of her personality that was critical, and she paid a high price for it. But I thought about her after that, to see her as she'd be in heaven. And every time I greeted her and every time I talked to her, it was like I saw her in that perfected heavenly state. And this is what he's saying. We're going to be perfect. The justified spirits, the ones that have been justified by grace, made perfect, absolutely perfect. And then he tells us we'll be in the presence of God. Verse 23 To the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. So we're in the presence of God. And then in verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator, and here it is, of the new covenant. We are there because of the new covenant of grace. We are with our mediator, the one who negotiated and ratified our covenant of grace with God. Next, grace speaks a better message, verse 24b and 25. And to the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. 
Abel was the righteous son of Adam and Eve, and he was killed by his brother Cain. And God said in Genesis that Abel's blood cried out from the earth. And you know what it cried out for? Vengeance. Vengeance. It was saying that blood must be spilled. The blood of the murderer must be spilled to cover the blood of the slain. That's the message of Abel's blood. Vengeance. Vengeance. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better message the message of grace. Forgive them. Forgive them. Remember how Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As his blood was spilling to the ground, it spoke of forgiveness. It spoke the hope of being covered, covered from the wrath of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. No more vengeance, but a better message. Jesus' blood, the sprinkling, speaks of forgiveness, purification, and life. This is the message given from heaven by the Holy Spirit. No one escaped the message of Abel's blood. Under the law, the one who murdered must be murdered. And all fell under the curse of the law. But the message from heaven is a savior. It's a greater message, an inescapable message with a greater reward, but also a greater consequence for refusal. If the message of vengeance, if the message of the law brought a terrible end, murder for the murderer, how much more severe if we refuse the message of grace, of God's grace being offered to us. This covenant of grace provides a better future, verses 26 and 27. We're told that there will be a shaking. Haggai 2, verse 6, the prophet talked about the shaking that would come worldwide. There would be a shaking. Nothing on earth is secure. No institution, no business, no relationship, no possession, no government, no kingdom, no political system, no civilization. Uh, It's interesting to go to these ancient uh, places and see great civilizations like even Rome, the Rome Forum, and to see them in ruins and to see how much has been ruined. And yet people lived here. People had businesses here. This seemed like it would never end. And yet there it is. It's, it's in ruins. And we're told that God will shake the earth. I believe it's in Isaiah where it talks about how God will shake it like um, someone cleaning out a carpet, just shaking all the dust and dirt off of it. He will remove the things that are so that he can bring in the things that are eternal that cannot be shaken. Only what God has established will remain, only the good. And he says, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that is eternal, we are to serve God acceptably. Listen to this about 
what we are receiving from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, where Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see that? We are receiving an eternal, secure, undefiled, incorruptible inheritance. It cannot be shaken. And because of this great inheritance, by grace, we offer better service to God. We not only receive, here we are, better relationships, better destination, better future, and a better message by grace. But it is by grace that we can serve God better. That's why he says, let us have grace. Let us have grace. And then what? By which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. What do we need to serve God acceptably? What will meet the standard? It is grace. Let us have grace grace. Grace has been provided to us through the new covenant. We have been saved by grace, but we must continue in grace. In Acts 13 verse 43, when Paul and Barnabas were going back to the churches that had been established, they spoke to them and exhorted them to continue in grace. This is the message of the apostles. You can't do it through the law. You can't please God acceptably except by his own grace working in us. It is only by the power of God's grace working in us that we can serve God acceptably. And what will it produce? Godly reverence. And, and that word reverence there means humility to a sovereign. Reverent, like how you would greet. I've told you before, I love Judge Judy. But people will come into Judge Judy's court. She'll ask them a question and they'll say, yep. And she'll say, what did you say? And they're like, oh, yes, ma'am. She's like, that's better. And I remember somebody said, you know, Judge Judy, she said, I'm not Judge Judy to you. I'm not your friend. And they said, Judge Scheinler, she's like, better. And, you know, she put this great big chasm, this respect. And I was thinking, if you have that type of respect for Judge Judy, how much more respect we have for the Lord but how do we get the right attitude by grace? We realize that all we have, our status, our power, our strength is all because of this grace that has been brought to us through Jesus Christ, through his life, his death, and his resurrection. This is why we can have grace. The connotation is knowing our true estate and need. We come humbly with great respect, knowing that Jesus has all we need. But we also serve with godly fear. This word fear means veneration and piety. It is, it is to serve God by receiving his grace, knowing that a refusal of his grace is lethal. So we embrace and we receive from the Lord everything he has for us. 
And then the author ends with this word, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is not safe. You cannot choose the way you serve God. He has given us this new covenant of grace. There is no going back to the old covenant. That won't work. You can't serve God. You might say, I want to serve God through rules and rituals and regulations and through the feasts. You can't. You can't. There is only one way to acceptably serve God. And that's through Jesus Christ and the grace he's brought. Any other way is lethal. It'll burn you up. God is not safe. We cannot choose the way we honor God. We cannot choose what we will call him. Well, I want to call him Herbert. No, we serve God, Yahweh, and his son, Jesus, the Messiah. It's not like, well, I I serve him, but I, I do it through using this name of this other religious God. No, God cannot be toyed with. God is only safe to us through the mediation of Jesus, through the grace that Jesus has brought us. We must approach God in Christ by grace alone because any other approach is like trying to go to Mount Sinai. It's lethal, it's dangerous, it's harsh, and it's painful. I was thinking about this quote Um, in the Chronicles of Narnia from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I I knew Jasmine would have it immediately. I just, I thought, Jasmine probably even has this on her phone. I'm just going to ask her. So I sent her a quick text, and within like seconds, boom, it was there. And she said, I think you mean this one. And it was exactly what I want. And it's one of my favorite parts in the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's the part where the children... Um, are all in Narnia. Edmund has snuck off some part, uh, place and nobody knows. But they're talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver is telling them that they've got to prepare and they're going to go see Aslan, who is the lion. And he's a type of Christ. And he's really strong and powerful. And if you haven't read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you have to. You must. You can even get it on audio and it's so interesting to listen to. But in there... The beaver says to the children, Aslan is a lion. Don't you like the accent? The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's so true. Even as Aslan, the lion was not safe without the right approach. So God and Jesus are not safe except through grace and the covenant of grace. We cannot approach Jesus any way we feel. We must approach him on the basis of what he has done for us. So the author uses the word grace over seven times in this epistle to show us the superiority of what we have received through faith in Christ Jesus, to show us the way to respond and walk in this new covenant. It is in grace, it is by grace, it is through grace, and we are sustained by God's divine grace. 
So let us have grace that we may serve God acceptably. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us more insights into this great grace. Lord, this grace that we need in our hearts to keep from bitterness, this grace that we need in order to have better relationships, to have a better destination and a better perspective of who you are, this grace we need to communicate the better message, the grace we need Uh, to have a better future and the grace we need to offer you the best service, the service that you desire. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with grace, that you would remove from our hearts the law, the rituals, um, the bondage, the condemnation, and you would replace those things with this wondrous grace, Lord, that grace would grace our lives In Jesus' name, amen.